If it is your first time here, welcome. My name's John. I'm the lead pastor. Appreciate you guys coming on out, particularly when it's raining. Um, uh, we are in the midst of this fall series that we are calling Follow Me. Now, the big kind of theme for this series is this idea that Jesus was a master evangelist, that he had this unique ability to engage with anyone and everyone, uh, rich, poor, powerful, powerless, people who were nothing like him, liked him. They, they, they wanted to be in his company. They wanted to be in his presence. They wanted to hear what he had to say and see what he was going to be doing. And so our goal for this series is to kind of figure out what his secret sauce was. How did he do what he did? And, and to learn how he engaged with people and then follow his lead. Do what he does as we go out into the world to kind of share the message of Jesus Christ. Last week, if you were here with us, we examined a really interesting conversation between Jesus and an expert of the law, as Luke described him. This guy who was basically a Bible teacher, in, in, for our terms. Um, it was somebody who knew the Bible really well, but didn't know himself and didn't know his heart. And so to reach his heart, Jesus told a story called The Good Samaritan to kind of get him thinking about any prejudices that might exist in his heart and to challenge him about what it looks like to really follow the law of God, so to speak. Now, the, the, the Good Samaritan is a great story, perhaps one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture, but it's a fake story. Remember, it's a parable. This is a fictional story that Jesus told to teach us a real truth. There was no good Samaritan. That was not a real guy. This is, Jesus just chose the idea of a Samaritan because he wanted to trigger that expert in the law, and he did. So this week, what I thought might be interesting for us to do would be to sort of expand on this parable and show you a time when Jesus actually engages with a Samaritan to see what happens in life when the rubber meets the road, when Jesus has a real run-in with a quote-unquote despised Samaritan, as the guy was described in last week's parable. Now, before we jump into today's account, I want to show you a passage that's found in Isaiah. Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus' birth. Now, in this passage, what you're going to see is God speaking to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. God says this, it is too small a thing for you, Jesus, to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. God is saying, Jesus, look, listen, it is too insignificant a task, as it's written in other translations. It is too small a thing for me to send you as a sacrifice for just the Jewish people. Now, I've got a, a bigger job for you. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. In today's story, we are going to see the gospel go beyond the Jews. We are going to see Jesus Christ obey the Father and his plans for his message in this world to take that message of salvation to the ends of the earth. Our story is going to open up in John chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Let's just stop real quick. So Jesus is going from Judea up to Galilee, says he's got to go through Samaria on the way. Sounds inconsequential to us, kind of background details. But a first century Jew would hear this and they would go, mm, no, you don't have to go 
through Samaria. In fact, historical records let us know that Jews would avoid the country of Samaria at all costs. Let me show you a map so you have an idea of what we're talking about. Here's the map, Middle East. You got Judea down here at the bottom. You see Jerusalem there. In the middle is Samaria, and up top is Galilee. And so Jesus is going from the bottom to the top. Now, because the Jews hated Samaria so much, and we're going to get into that in a, in a bit, they would purposefully avoid this country. They would take often the eastern route, follow the Jordan River up to Galilee, or they would take the western route along the Mediterranean. And only in dire circumstances, when time was of the essence, would they travel through Samaria. So when John says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, we know it wasn't because it was the only route, and we know it wasn't because he was in a rush, and we're going to talk about that at the end of the service. Rather, it was because Jesus had what I'll call a divine appointment with a Samaritan who needed to hear the gospel. Story continues. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Important details, but not important for us today. Continues. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. That's an important detail. File that away. Because soon, it says, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Stop. So the fact that it says a Samaritan woman came out there to get water at noon is a big red flag for the original audience. Now, at this time, 2,000 years ago, we know that it was the woman's job to go and get water. That's what they did. We also know they would normally go in the early morning hours because in that part of the world, it gets hot, much like here. So they would go in the early morning hours, and we know they would go in groups, not just for safety, but for camaraderie. But this woman is all by herself, and it's the hottest time of the day. What's up with that? Well, we're soon going to learn this woman had a past. We're going to learn that she's been married five times, and she's currently living with a guy, shacking up, as my grandparents would call it. Now, in the first century, a woman who had been divorced five times, just to be honest with you, would have been despised by everyone. She would be considered by men to be someone that they could just sleep with. And because of that, she would be hated by other women, not just for being a failure at marriage in their mind, but they would also see her as a danger to their marriage. And you can guess why. Now, she would be regarded by the entire community as a real sinner. We kind of talked about this in week one, this non-existent, non-scriptural hierarchy of sin that we like to create to just sort of judge other people. Like, yeah, I may have sinned, but I mean, she's a real sinner. You see what she's doing over there? This means that this woman would have been detested by Jews for being a Samaritan, and she would be detested by her own people because of her life and because of her sins. So what does Jesus say to this detested Samaritan? Please, give me a drink, he said to her. He was alone at this time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Okay, so the connection has now been made. The Jew and the Samaritan meet. Jesus is on enemy soil, so to speak. He is all by himself with a real, live, breathing Samaritan. This is a big deal. It really is. We as modern audiences don't really kind of pick up on the magnitude of this meeting, but first century Jews would be scandalized by this. Any committed religious Jew at this time 
okay, there would be a series of barriers in place that would prevent this kind of interaction from ever happening. They're interesting. So let me kind of walk you through a few of these barriers. The first big barrier would be that of race. Now, the Jews saw the Samaritans as being a member of the wrong race. Way before Jesus' time, Israel was one nation, okay? Then it split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom's capital was Jerusalem. The northern kingdom's capital was Samaria. Eventually, Assyria came in and captured that northern kingdom. And eventually, the Samaritan Jews that lived there married those Assyrians. That's a problem, according to Scripture. Now, these mixed marriages created interracial children. And so in Jesus' time, the Jews would hate the Samaritans because they believed they, quote-unquote, polluted, their words, not mine, polluted the blood of the patriarchs. So you got a problem of race. Then there's the barrier of religion. Not only had the Samaritan bloodline become mixed, so had their religious beliefs. Remember, they started off Jewish. And as a result of intermarrying, they began to incorporate pagan ideas into their belief system. We know that they would read the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They read those, but that was it. We also know that they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, and we're going to see this in a bit. And they claim that this was the real temple, not the one down in Jerusalem. And so Jewish folks would see them as heretics because of their confused theology and their improper worship at the wrong temple. And the next barrier is that of gender. 2,000 years ago was not a great time to be a woman, all right? They were not respected in the Roman Empire, and they were treated equally as poorly within sort of the Jewish culture. One example of such treatment was that a Jewish man was not actually supposed to speak to a woman in public. And we have evidence of this found in the Talmud. We read in Avit 1.5, he who talks with a woman in public brings evil upon himself. Now remember, this is not the Bible. This is the Talmud. It would be written by rabbis and added to the word of God. It wasn't the word of God, but it was equally respected by them. We also know that women were prevented from having any kind of spiritual education. Again, in the Talmud, we read, let the words of the law be burned rather than taught to a woman. Again, not the Bible, but equally respected. Now, this next one's going to blow your mind. We actually have a record of a prayer by the Pharisees, and if you've heard that word before, they're kind of the religious leaders during Jesus' time. And the Pharisees would pray, thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, but a Jew, that I am not a slave, but I'm free, not a woman, but a man. Real nice. Now, look at how Paul, who was a Pharisee, who wrote over half the New Testament, look at how Paul reverses and redeems this prayer when he speaks about the Christian unity found in Christ. Paul writes, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Paul clearly learned from Jesus' own example that this view of the Pharisees was offensive to God. Who better than Jesus to show that women were full equals of men? That Jesus trusted women, Jesus respected women, Jesus ministered to women, and Jesus died for women. So knowing all of these barriers that exist between the Jew and the Samaritan, 
Let's see how this encounter unfolds. Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. So knowing what we know, this is already unusual because Jesus as a Jewish man is alone and speaking to a woman in public. She says to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? She is aware of how unusual this is, okay? And she cannot believe that a Jewish man is asking her for a drink. What we see here is that Jesus just completely ignores social custom and Jewish law in order to minister to this woman. He sets aside all the usual barriers that would have kept him from this woman, which means it is abundantly clear that Jesus has no problem with race, he has no problem with gender. He created all. He's here to save all. And so he treats this woman as a social equal with respect. And he replies, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. So if you're a Christian in the room, and I know a lot of you are, and you're familiar with the Bible, you could probably suss out what he's alluding to here. He's using this analogy of water uh, to talk about salvation. Now, as this conversation unfolds, what you're going to see is that she's kind of struggling with its analogy. Like she doesn't, re like she kind of has moments of clarity, but she's struggling to grasp what he's talking about. She says to him, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob? who gave us this well, how can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoy? This is kind of what I'm talking about. She can sense that Jesus is offering something better, that he's offering something more, but what is it? Mm, she doesn't know yet. Jesus replies, anyone who drinks this water will soon be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them giving them eternal life. And there's our big word from last week. Later in the book of John, in just a few short chapters, Jesus is going to define what eternal life means to him. And he says that eternal life is a relationship with God the Father and with Jesus, one that begins here on earth and continues into heaven. And so Jesus, in this moment, is inviting this Samaritan woman into a relationship. He's offering her salvation. This is world-changing. This is what Isaiah was talking about 700 years earlier, that it would be too small a thing for Jesus to come just for the Jews. Please, sir, she says, give me this water, then I'll never have to be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get the water. Then Jesus says something that completely catches her off guard, completely knocks the wind at her, comes out of nowhere, he says, go and get your husband. No, Jesus, don't go there. Don't go. But he goes there. He takes her right back to that thing that she does not want to talk about. It's the reason she's out there in the heat. It's the, it's the reason that she is now treated like an outcast. She could defend herself if, if she had to, but she doesn't want to. And so she says, I don't, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. If you've had five husbands, oh, this is so awkward, right? This is too much. Jesus, dial it back, my brother. What are you doing to this poor woman? He's not done. 
He goes, and you aren't even, imagine this, you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Here's what's so interesting. When Jesus says you aren't even married to the man, in the original Greek, it indicates that somebody else is married to that man. She's having an affair. She's living with a married man. This proves to be too much for her, okay? She can't handle it. And so she tries to change the subject. And she goes, sir, you must be a prophet. Uh, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? Here's the, the religion problem. While we Samaritans claim it's here in Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshiped. In other words, hey, let's talk about theology, not my past, please. It's getting a little too personal. Now, amazingly, Jesus allows this kind of diversion. And he, as a rabbi, begins to instruct her as a woman. He, as a rabbi, begins to teach her. And what he tells her is that the Jews are correct in their theology and the Samaritans are wrong. Now, I'm not going to read it for you because it's kind of long. It's a little technical. But when Jesus is done, she says, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. In other words, look, I don't really know about the temple stuff. I kind of just asked you to get you off my back, but I, I do know one thing, and here's what I know. One day, the Messiah is going to come. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Watch this. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. Now that stopped her in her tracks. This right here is the very first time that Jesus publicly proclaims that he is, in fact, the Messiah. And he makes the greatest announcement that the world has ever heard to a Samaritan, to a woman with a messy life under the blazing hot sun in a part of the world that people avoid. And in that moment, she knew. She knew that he was telling the truth. Just then, his disciples returned, and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. His Jewish disciples, like the Samaritan woman, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Story wraps up. It says, then, leaving her water jar, she, the woman went back into the town and said to the people, come, see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to go see him. I love this word stream. I just picture hordes of people running and kind of pushing each other out of the way to meet this man who changed this woman. John lets us know that Jesus stayed two full days with these Samaritans living with them, loving on them, teaching them. Story ends by the Samaritans saying, now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. In my opinion, it is one of the greatest stories in all of scripture. So what can we learn from this amazing encounter? How, how can we follow Jesus' lead? It's the question we're asking every single week. What can we draw from Jesus' conversation with this Samaritan woman? And how can we follow his lead as we go out into the world to talk to others about Christ? The first thing we notice is the importance of living what I'll call intentional lives. Jesus lived every moment of his life doing the Father's will. There were no wasted movements at all. In comparison, our lives are often mm, disordered, unplanned, and yet Paul challenges the Christians by saying, so be very careful how you live. 
Do not live like people who aren't wise. Live like people who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity. Now, this challenge to make the most of every opportunity comes in the context of Paul urging believers to be intentional about outreach. All of us as Christians are called to offer our life to God so that he may use us in whatever way he wills. And every day we should be praying to God for him to give us opportunities to serve him, to go where he wants us to go, to meet the people that he wants us to meet, to live in a manner that pleases him, and to speak the words that he has prepared for us. There are opportunities all around us to grow God's kingdom. Let's be intentional about how we live. Second thing we learn from today is the importance of overcoming barriers. In today's encounter, what we see is that Jesus tore down all the barriers that his culture had created that would have prevented this meeting from ever happening. We talked about it. The Jews created laws to prevent men from speaking to women. They created laws to prevent men from teaching women. They created laws to keep Jews from interacting with Samaritans. They even created laws that would prevent Jews from drinking out of Samaritan cups. Which leads us to ask, well, what barriers keep us apart from those around us? How do we see other human beings? Do we categorize people according to their race or their social class or their economic class? And if we do see people in such categories, is it for the purpose of, of deciding whom we will intentionally avoid or dismiss? Paul reminds Christians of an important truth. He says, in this new life with Christ, One's nationality or race or education or social position is unimportant. Such things mean nothing. Wow. Whether people or whether a person has Christ is what matters. And he is equally available to all. He's saying as Christians, you guys live in a new humanity where all barriers have been torn down by the work of of Christ. However, we live in a world and a country and a time where people love barriers, seemingly worship categories. But Paul says such things mean nothing. So as Christians, we got to follow Jesus' lead. We got to tear down all of any barriers that exist that might keep us away from showing folks the message and the love of Jesus Christ. The third thing we learn is the importance of making friends with unbelievers. This isn't really a problem here at this church, thank God. But in the church at large, it's kind of an issue. Many Christians kind of think that it's almost ungodly or inappropriate to have friends who are unbelievers. And their rationale is that unbelievers can only influence for the bad and never for the good. And we behave as though Christians have everything to give the non-Christian and nothing to receive. That it's almost demeaning, if you will, for us to show them that, that, that we have a need, that Christians sort of have it all together, right? And letting the unbeliever know that we don't have all the answers or that we might actually need something from them. Well, we might discredit ourselves or maybe even the gospel. Truth is, we are all morally flawed. Our theology is never perfect, okay? And like everybody else in this world, we are weak and needy. And the gospel of Jesus is not served by pretending otherwise. The very first thing that Jesus did was to ask this woman for help. Please, 
Can you give me some water? Like Jesus, we must acknowledge our need for the kindness and the wisdom and the advice an unbeliever may give us. Because that's encouraging for some unbelievers who, who may have been led to expect only scorn and condescension from a Christian. Now, one last thing, and I'll make it quick and I'll wrap this up. We've got to learn the, the importance of, of respectful correction. As you go out into the world and you begin to speak to others about faith or God or Jesus or the Bible, as you respectfully listen to what they believe or what they were taught, what you're going to find is that there really is such a thing as bad theology. It's out there. Now, there is a right and there is a wrong when it comes to the things of God. There are beliefs that are scriptural and there are beliefs that are not found in scripture, perhaps even anti-scriptural. Jesus was very clear in this encounter. The Samaritans had bad theology. They had some things right, but they had a lot of stuff wrong. But Jesus never yelled at this woman, never made her feel like trash, never made her feel like a heretic, even though some of her beliefs were heretical. He engaged her in dialogue. And then he respectfully corrects her theology. And he showed her the truth. What Jesus is showing us is that you're not really loving a person if you let them continue to believe that which isn't true. And we do this all the time. We got a responsibility to help others know the truth of Jesus. And part of that responsibility is to help them recognize when they don't know the truth. Now, if we're going to do this, we have to follow Jesus' lead. And we got to do it with love and compassion and respect. Our goal is not to bulldoze them. Our goal is not to degrade them. Our goal is to restore them and to respectfully correct their theology so that they too might know that Jesus is Lord. So, what's practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first time here at DHC, every single week, throw this word up on the screen so you can know what to do with what you heard. So today I have one practical for you. One thing, kind of one prompt, one question that I really want you to be praying about. And here it is. Who is your Samaritan? Like, if you're a Christian in this room, who's your Samaritan? Who is that person or that group or that sin or that category that you just write off? That when you think about them or who they are or what they do, you think, now that's a real sin. So much so that you've kind of washed their, your hands of them. I know, okay, you're all going to say, you know, that's not me. I don't have a Samaritan. I love everyone. Great, fine. We're all perfect. I understand. I'm not asking you to raise your hand and tell us who your Samaritan is, okay? I'm asking you to search your heart and recognize if any prejudices do exist. And then I'm asking you to allow to follow Jesus' lead and to do something about it. Change the way you think. Change the way you act. Change the way you pray. Jesus showed every single person grace and mercy. Jesus came for everyone. Jesus died for everyone. And so we must take his message to everyone, especially your Samaritan. Let me pray for you. Dearly Father, 
Lord, when I think of this account, which is just so incredible, God, I'm just reminded that every single one of us at some point in our life may have felt like a Samaritan. You know, maybe we made mistakes, maybe we didn't have things right and people looked down on us and wanted nothing to do with us, Lord, but you loved us. And at some point, you put someone on our path who showed us the truth. And Lord, those of us who know you as your Lord and Savior, we thank you. And I pray, Lord, that those of us in this room who do call ourselves Christians would be convicted by this message. To think about any prejudices that may exist in our hearts, to think about any barriers our culture may have erected, that perhaps even our, our church traditions have erected, Lord. And I pray that you would challenge us to live differently and to love differently and to share your message with every single person who you put on our path. And God, I pray that if there's someone in this room right now who resonates with this woman, God, I pray that today you might offer them the living water. That, God, they would know that, they sent, that you sent your son Jesus into this world specifically for them, and you want to get in their life right now, as messy as it is, you love them. And you are here to help them, and you are here to save them. God, we are all sinners. And we are so grateful for your son Jesus. And we ask all this in his name.